So the wife and I are planning a trip to El Salvador in November, early November. Never been. Don't know anything really about the area. And so I thought maybe this was the moment to unveil ChatGPT upon the wife and get her opinion. And like a good self-hoster, I, I set her up with the chatbot UI stuff that is locally hosted using the API key and stores things locally on the server. And you know what? I'm going to say spouse approved. She's been really using it and finding it useful to ask travel questions, planning questions, gardening questions. It's kind of, I think, what she always wanted Google to be. It's legitimately pretty useful as a planning tool. Just just this weekend, we went to uh, Wookiees in the Woods, as you probably know, if you listen to more than one episode. And uh, we had one night in Helen, Georgia, which is this Bavarian-themed mountain town. And I just asked ChatGPT, what are the restaurants I should check out for, for dinner and for breakfast? And it gave me a list of two or three for each thing. It's pretty sweet. So maybe you could ask it how not to get, you know, the pat down at the El Salvadorian border. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or the shank to rob or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to ask, what's taking you down, down that way then? Well, like, the idea started, uh, I was invited to go to a conference down there. Um, and I said, no, I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. But then uh, my son, Dylan, who's gotten really fascinated in geography, was starting to talk about, oh, I'd love to go to El Salvador. And he's been researching El Salvador on his own and getting really excited about El Salvador. And I thought, wouldn't that be quite the 14th birthday present is to go to El Salvador? And I'm really curious about the area because you read so many different controversial takes on what's going on down there and what it's like. And you hear a lot. So I thought, let's go and find out. And um, I'm, I don't know. I think I'm going to try to do like the Airbnb thing. I'm I'm trying to find uh, tech companies and listeners that are down there. I'd love to do a meetup if there's enough listeners. I'd love to interview some tech companies if there's folks down there that speak English that are in the tech industry. So maybe do a little work while I'm down there, too. Should be, I hope, fun. And, you know, depending on the way things go down there for the next 10 years, I'd like to maybe come back in a decade and see where things have gotten and uh, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. And so. Thought now would be the time to go. It should be a really interesting trip. It's it's not an era of the world, I'll be honest, that I know a huge amount about. I do remember, it must have been when I was at school, so 20 years ago, there was some horrible hurricanes hit Honduras and El Salvador and that kind of area. So for me, that's what that area is kind of famous for. More recently, there's been a whole bunch of crypto stuff going on down there, right? Yeah, and crime, unfortunately. I mean, not more recently, but... I think crime has also been another thing that's been known for. And so one of the things that I'd love to get my eyes on is they have a pretty controversial president. Like you mentioned, he's he's enacted uh, Bitcoin as one of the local currencies. No other crypto, just Bitcoin. There there really is no other crypto. And then he's also made a lot of really strong like crime arrests for gang violence and stuff like that, that some people say is sort of like a human rights violation and other people say it's changing lives down there. And it's such a quintessential example of what goes on in the information space. We have all this information now, but yet we can't really get clear signal unless you just go do the work yourself. So, yeah. And, you know, the pricing isn't ridiculous. You know, when you're on a podcaster's budget, it's like you could go down there. The cost of living is it's like going back to the early aughts in, in, in the States. It's, it's quite a significant difference in cost of living down there. So that'll be nice. Well, you heard it here first, folks. JB 3.0 is going to be brought to you from San Salvador. <laughs> from just one really long Airbnb rental. <laughs> well, I hope you have a good trip. It's, like I say, an area I don't know too much about. And I, I look forward to your air quotes review. of. of yeah, I'm going to try to do shows while I'm there. It should be interesting. 
And uh, yeah, November. So I got a bit. So if you're in the area, reach out Chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Well, if you remember on episode 502 of Linux Unplugged, we did a breakdown of Docker's shocking announcement that they were going to sunset their free team plan. We're a little bit late to this as this episode airs, just to the nature of how this show works every two weeks. But Docker have done a complete U-turn. It seems like they've listened to the community and the feedback from various aspects of the open source development community and that kind of thing. And they're no longer sunsetting that free team plan. Yeah. Um, does it feel like, uh, though, do you think that the, the message was received, people got the idea that this is not necessarily something you could count on? Or with, is this enough from Docker's standpoint? Is this enough of a capitulation that people are going to just kind of shrug off what happened and just pay forward using Docker Hub almost exclusively? What do you think? Is this enough to get people to start looking at other alternatives than for Docker Hub? Well, I did. I started looking. And if I'm looking, I can I can bet that there are other people in the audience that are looking too, you know. For me, it was the realization that a lot of the apps that I use are beholden to this upstream kind of dependency on Docker Hub that even if I bring the actual image itself in-house, the repeatability of that image is based upon whatever upstream chain, and it could be 20, 30, 40 Docker images deep. You've no real way of knowing uh, what the dependency chain is unless you go and look at the Docker files and look at the from line at the beginning of each one to say, where did that inherit, where did that inherit, and so on. And uh, I, I think a lot of open source organizations felt exposed. I think a lot of users felt exposed by this news. And well, on the one hand, I'm really glad to see that they've done a U-turn. I think that is the right thing to do. They went on record to say that Docker Hub is a rounding error in their overall spend as a company, mm. Docker. And so all of that leads me to think, well, why did you go and burn all that goodwill in the first place? What a stupid thing to do. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> Looking back at it now, it it seems maybe like... Uh... Either A, that statement isn't true, or B, they were hoping to change it. They were hoping to change it from a fraction of their revenue to a, you know, a measurable, decent part of their revenue or something like that. Perhaps, but the only reason they had that position in the first place was, I suppose, some anti-competitive measures that Docker implemented in the early versions of their clients, where they hijack the root namespace in the docker clients. Um, so if you, what that means, for those that don't know, is if you type docker pull image uh typically what you should have to do is do docker pull uh, url.registry.com slash image well with docker they hijacked the default namespace in the docker clients so you don't have to type you know registry.docker.io into your into your things it sounds like a small thing and it it is ostensibly a small thing but we all know that default is king and you know, in the early days when people were publishing images, there was only really one big free Docker registry to go at, and that was Docker Hub. And so it kind of, it won by default because it was first. It won by default because of the namespace hijack. And so because of those two things, they had a dominant market position, which they, I think they were trying to abuse, honestly, with this announcement. So uh, anybody that was looking to, you know, throw their arms up and move off docker hub because it was going to go away you should possibly still try and do that in my opinion find an alternative because if they've done it once who's to say that in a year five ten they won't do it again 
Yeah, or come at it at a different angle or something, you know, after some time has passed and everybody is not quite as upset. We'll see. Yeah. It's that old, you know, we're, we're going to ch- we're gonna do a 100% price increase. Um, Oh, wait, the community's outraged. We're only going to do 10% now. It's like, give them an inch or get, we'll take a mile, but we, we'll, we'll do an inch, you know? Uh, that was a poor analogy. But you know what I mean, right? Yeah, and it's, isn't it funny, too, that even after all this time, and all this experience with internet communities that they still blow the messaging as well. Like they all, that was one of the things they apologize. Oh yeah. We talked about this the wrong way and we should have made some things more clear. It's just incredible at this point in time that that still gets messed up. <laughs> like they didn't know, like you read this, you went, you know, as, as everybody else in the rest of the world, we read that and it's obvious how everybody was going to respond. <laughs> Maybe they didn't realize quite how lucky they were in their position. And then when they start running the numbers and they see the blog posts and the, dare I say, podcasts and stuff that, that chastise them for this announcement. And they realize, Oh, actually people do care. People do use this. Companies do rely on us to provide reliable infrastructure and they're not going to trust us to, to run their data center platform. If we pull the rug, maybe they just didn't realize how dominant their position was. Maybe it was arrogance. It also feels like maybe they thought about it a bit and, you know, if, if you, if you change this, it's kind of a domino effect. Well, if I stop doing it this way, well, then why don't I start changing this? And if I'm changing this, I might as well change that. And then before you know it, you're using Podman. <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I shouldn't, I should note that there are a plethora of Docker Hub alternatives these days. The, the live chat's busy, busy listing them all. You know, there's key.io, there's GitHub container registry, although that one, yeah, I mean, both of them, actually, you're swapping Docker for Red Hat or Docker for Microsoft. You know, there isn't a proper uh, vendor agnostic major Docker repo for images. I don't know if there ever will be simply because of the bandwidth costs required, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a real problem. It is a real problem. And the only genuine solution to this upstream reliance is to bring the entire chain of your build pipeline for your Docker images in-house from the scratch image all the way to your built deployed image, which uh, that's kind of a shame. That kills the fun, doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but you know what is fun? New version of Proxmox 7.4 has been released. Now we've got to get the important thing out of the way first. And I think this is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back for Chris's adoption of Proxmox. Oh no. There's a dark mode. An official, oh. an official dark mode for Proxmox. No more hacks. Great. That's fantastic. The fully integrated Proxmox dark theme is now available for the web interface. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I should have been, I should have loaded dark reader just so I could read that in dark mode. <laughs> so Proxmox 7.4 was released recently. Updated versions of QMU, LXC, ZFS, and Ceph are in there. New Linux kernel, so an LTS kernel in there, uh, of 5.15. Um, now, what was particularly interesting to me in this announcement, when you dig into the notes a little bit further down in the kernel section, there is now a brand new option to run a non-LTS kernel. And in this case, that means kernel 6.2. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's what gets me. And so for those of you that don't understand why that's a big deal, the kernel in Linux, which is, you know, it, it's often confused with Linux as the desktop, as the operating system or whatever, but Linux is actually just the kernel. So uh, that's responsible for translating what you type in a terminal, say, 
into commands that the hardware can actually understand. So it sits as a layer between the physical devices you have in your system and the user space kind of area that you're living in. And and the kernel sits in the middle, a bit like, you know, Men in Black, the, the guy in the mail room with 18 arms? That's basically what the kernel's doing. Like it, it, it gets requests in. It says, hey, I'm going to send this thing over here, a network request, whatever, a hard drive request, a CPU request, whatever it is. And it has a whole bunch of logic inside of it to deal with all of that stuff. So now we know what a kernel is. We can understand why a more modern one is important because the kernel contains drivers which interface with newer hardware. So if you have a new graphics card, let's say an Intel Arc GPU, for example, and you wanted to run that under Proxmox, well, you wouldn't be able to under 5.15. With 6.2, I think 6.2 anyway, you can. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of hardware reasons, but the Arc's a great example. And uh, I'm always, myself too, I I know this is going to, this is heresy, but the problem with something like 5.15, the Linux 5.15 kernel, is that it came out a long time ago. And there have been improvements, fixes, bug fixes, but also security type fixes since then. And some of them get backported. A lot of them get backported. Not all of them get backported. Now we're talking like November of 2021 is when this kernel came out. That's a long time in Linux land. That's a long time in security land. And it's a long time in hardware driver's land. So it is really great. They're giving you an option to go to 6.2. That is, to me, probably one of the more killer features now. Not everybody's going to need that. And the people who don't, don't even need to bother with it. But those of us who do are going to love it. That is so great to see. And it's Debian Bullseye under the hood. So you just got a good solid Debian release there. ZFS 219. I'm using the heck out of Proxmox these days. I think I must have five or six Proxmox installs going at the minute. It's just my default because it's it, it runs ZFS out of the box. So I don't need to worry about DKMS. I happen to have uh, LXC support with a, a UI along with all the remote management you know, console features that that has. Uh, so whenever I need to spin in anything up these days, I just use a little bit of Terraform, uh, create a couple of LXCs or a VM with cloud in it. Proxmox really is. It's just been a sleeper that's been quietly improving. And it doesn't require, you know, like um, if you want to use ESXi, you've got to run vCenter, which is at minimum 8 to 10 gig, probably 12 gig of memory. And in these small systems that we're running these days, uh, you know, I'm, I, I've retired my dual Xeon box with its 256 gigs of RAM where, where vCenter didn't matter. Uh, with, with Proxmox, it's just Debian. So I'm using maybe a gig for the operating system, if that, which means the rest is all available for guests and, and containers and things. So what you're saying is I need another Odroid and I need to run Proxmox on it. So what you're saying? Yeah. Or you could pick up one of these, you know, Dell small form factor things we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Or Yeah. If it runs Linux, it'll run Proxmox for the most part. The only thing to watch out for would be VTX support, so vir- mm. virtualization extensions. Otherwise, should be good, right? Yeah, I think so. That's not too hard of a bar to hit. Yeah, not these days, although maybe mm. it used to be. But in the in the old days, it used to be anyway. Yeah. Our friends over at Tailscale announced a new pricing structure this week, which took the internet by complete surprise. I don't know about you, but when I got the email in my inbox this week that said, Tailscale pricing changes announced, I, I tightened a little bit. Yep. I puckered. Yep. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
Yeah, I know. And um, we decided to pull this out from the ad read and just talk about it because I think everybody in the audience noticed this too. Uh, they've tweaked the free plan to have more devices now and more users. So the free plan is uh, better now. It has uh, up to 100 nodes. That's a big one, in my opinion. And they've turned off the limit for subnet routing. I guess they initially thought people might in install Tailscale on one node and then use subnet routing for everything else. But they say that just really hasn't been the case. It's a huge announcement. And it really shows that Tailscale as a company are doubling down on their strategy of hooking in uh, you and I and our dear listeners, you know, the the technical people of this world who go into work and say, we need to solve this problem of having a flat network across multiple sites, multiple data centers, or even just in the same building sometimes. What's an easy way of doing that? Yeah. And it, Tailscale is, it's kind of like the Dropbox in a way of file syncing. It's, a, it's like the Dropbox of VPNs. And I'm like, I'm running Jellyfin now. I don't have any inbound ports. I don't have any of the proxying stuff that Plex does. And <laughs> the wife and I stopped by and got a burger out on the road the other day. And on my phone, I fired up Jellyfin and I just streamed an episode of TV from my Odroid because I have Tailscale already running on my device. I didn't change anything. I just opened up the Swift or not Swiftfin, but uh, Jellyfin app and uh, ran and just streamed it just fine over Tailscale. It was beautiful it was just oh so choice and i i really can't understate i really can't overstate how useful it's been for um like getting access to my victron power equipment that i can't put tail scale on and being able to get access to my routers at different ends of the network and in the case of the rv i have logged in and changed internet sources over tail scale i mean it'll drop the connection temporarily but it, it actually comes back that's so huge to be able to get to those little appliance devices when i need to so I, I, not that I use the subnet routing a lot, but having no limits is nice. That is choice. And we're going to come on to Nextcloud iOS automations with Tailscale a bit later in the episode, but I've been using the heck out of, particularly whilst I was in the mountains this weekend, our mother-in-law was staying looking after the kid whilst uh, wife and I took the golfs up to the, the hills. Whenever I open up Home Assistant, I need to be on tail scale in order for the, the routing to, to go through. I've, I've canceled the $6 a month, whatever it is, uh, to Home Assistant lately um, because I can just route it all through tail scale now. I don't need their kind of remote cloud thing, and it's just one less hole open uh, in the firewall. Um, I find it incredibly useful for so many reasons, and not least of which you cancelling subscriptions but also i wanted to share audio bookshelf with my family so i just shared uh, a specific node in my subnet here with a few family members and they connect to tailscale they open up audio bookshelf they cache their book offline and then they disconnect and they do that once or twice a month and everybody's happy yep yeah it's really useful i have it on i have it on my family's speech. all right well it's kind of an ad now but tailscale.com slash self-hosted i guess um, but it's great to see them make this change and it's, it's clever like a fox and they talk about it in the blog post. They talk about their rationale for why they're doing this and it, it just kind of increases the amount of recommendations that they get when you enjoy using it personally, you go to work, you tell people about it and they start signing up and I can absolutely attest that I've seen that exact same behavior pattern with the listeners and with ourselves. I started using it personally. Now we use it here at JB listeners start using it personally. Now they're using it at work. It's, it's. It's really useful. So, yeah, I guess uh, support the show by going to tailscale.com slash self-hosted. So now it's a news and it's an ad, but it's pretty great to see. 
And I noticed a lot of people in our community talking about it. It's always an interesting line to try and walk as a content person, you know. How do we talk about a company that's also a sponsor without sounding like a shill? But Chris and I used Tailscale for a long time before they were a sponsor of the show. And we wouldn't have them on if we didn't recommend them either. So go check them out. We're clearly happy users. So you have a really neat looking top-like interface that seems to be pulling in what real-time container metrics. Yeah, this thing's pretty cool. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm an HTOP guy. I'm not a top guy. I'm an HTOP sort of guy. <laughs> yes. I love HTOP. Yeah. I like the colors. I like the fact that it all, always looks real, like I'm a real hacker, you know? <laughs> and so if you want an HTOP-like interface for your container metrics, there is a link in the show notes to CTOP, container top, I suppose is what it stands for. Uh, this uh, provides concise and condensed overview of real-time metrics for multiple containers in your terminal. And it came in particularly handy for me this week when I wanted to monitor, remember in the last episode, you recommended the web whisper thing, the, mm. the, the transcription thing. So I spanned that up in the last couple of weeks to get captions for all of my YouTube videos. And I was just wanting to monitor how much CPU it was using because it chomps, it chomps CPU, that whisper yeah. thing. <laughs> Unbelievable results, by the way, that, that whisper thing. It's like word perfect almost, even on technical stuff, which absolutely blew me away. Yeah. Um, and so I used CTOP to monitor things like CPU usage, RAM usage, all that kind of stuff. What was really interesting was watching WebWhisper load the various models into its buffer almost. And I ran two or three YouTube videos through it at once. And every time I loaded a new video in, it took four gigs of RAM. And so very quickly, I had one container <laughs> taking up 12 gigs of RAM and like 650% of a six-core CPU or something crazy. Heck so yeah. <laughs> it was, everything was quite slow whilst it was doing that. I found it really cool. And I love it when I see my server working hard on something like that. And I, I love to be able to visualize it too. I know, me too. It's this. It's one of the best things. Um. You know, so the 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 thing that really made Whisper work and Web Whisper in particular for for me and it sounds like for you was the CPP version, the CPU version. The individual who does a lot of that work is working on other projects to make more of these work on a lot of CPU cores, and it isn't as fast as the accelerators, you know, like the GPUs or like maybe the M1 neural chip, and fascinatingly, the results are sometimes different. So if you run a transcription on a set of GPUs versus the CPUs, you will actually get slightly different accuracy results, which is a real mind bender. Different better or just different? I don't know. I haven't, I can't say because I've primarily used the CPU ones and found it good enough, but I, I get the sense the GPU might be better, but I don't have enough direct experience. So I've been looking at this, trying to figure out how much of this stuff is going to be available to us directly offline, self-hosting, and how much is going to be completely hosted or require an API. And that web whisper is nice because once it downloads its models and gets everything it needs, all its stuff, it's completely offline, right? With as much as any thing that you update off of the internet is. Yep. There's others though where it kind of scales, right? Like um, different different ones that you can host components of it, but then it requires APIs. One that I I think is absolutely fascinating and perhaps even a little disturbing is auto gpt which is a fully autonomous gpt4 agent that can interface with other apis um, it can connect to other gpts it can task new gpt agents with particular personalities and objectives automatically 
and it can run, although they don't recommend this, it can run continuously. It also can access the internet, search for information, follow links. It has long-term and short-term memory. It can access popular websites and platforms via their API, like booking things for you, whatnot. It can do file storage. You can interact with it and program with it using VS Code and a plugin. <laughs> it, again, does require some access, though, to open AI for the API key, but you can run the software itself once that API key has been you know, provided and the access has been given. You can run it on your own machine. So most of it runs locally, but it still requires some remote cloud stuff. Real kind of mixed bag we're entering into right now where we're going to have to come up with a term where you're running a lot of the compute and the job locally, but it's dependent on remote models and information that is over an API. It's not quite self-hosted. It's not quite hybrid cloud either. Yeah. Which is a phrase that makes me vomit slightly every time I hear it. <laughs> I think you're supposed to be all in on that one. I don't well, know. That's what pays my mortgage is that hybrid cloud <laughs> yeah. thing. But still, still, it doesn't mean I have to like it as a term, I mean. Yeah, it's always been a little nebulous, in my opinion. Well, there, there were some leaks of various models throughout the last month or so. There was Llama, uh, CPP got leaked. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff, but it's an arms race right now in the AI space. It's it's going to be fascinating to see how it all goes. I wonder uh, just how big the gulf is between us as typical home users and our compute that's available to us and the compute that's available to OpenAI, for example, is. I mean, I'm sure it's vast, but I, I'd love to know how vast. Yeah, uh, I get the sense a lot. <laughs> Just how big is OpenAI's data center? I, I think Molly Wood did, I, I might be wrong, but I think Molly Wood recently did a piece on how big it is, how big their compute footprint is. And it's, it's massive. It, like, it, already, it already draws like more power than you'd want to you'd want to acknowledge it's pretty crazy it's we're immediately there it's really a tangent alex but you know you were talking about you like to see your cpu cores go i do too i like to have equipment running all the time i think about that draw i think about things like analyzing my media library detecting intros that can really blaze the cores things that are like you know stable diffusion that i'm that i'm using all the time uh chat gpt all these things use more power than the stuff before it and I can't really see a way around that. As we have more technology, we have more automation, we have more advancements, we're going to use more power. If we want transporters and warp drives and tractor beams and phasers, we're going to need more power. If we want teleporters, we're going to need more power. If we want replicators and holodecks, we're going to need more power. And so like, we, if, if we want everybody driving EVs, how about let's bring it a little more real. If we want everybody driving EVs, we're going to need a lot more power. And we got to solve that problem. And we're, we're just not really addressing that. Like just kind of, it it's just drives me crazy because I would love to be able to self-host and run all this gear with absolutely no shame and guilt. And I, you know, so I think about solar and whatnot, but when you think about it on a larger scale, we're going to have a whole bunch of AI agents at all these companies sucking down a whole bunch of power and everybody's going to be driving to their office and to work in their EV that sucks down a bunch of power. We probably get it. We probably should get this figured out sooner than later. You just got to make it so. <laughs> Lino.com slash SSH. Go there to get $100 in 60 day credit on a new account and support the show while you are checking out fast, reliable cloud hosting with the best support in the business. Real humans that'll talk to you and stick with you. Linode's how we run everything that we run in the cloud. 
And one of the things that's important to us as self-hosters, and I bet it probably matters to you as well, is you want to be able to log in and get access to your machine. Look at the processes running. Check your log files. Install or remove packages. Just the basics you need to maintain and run a machine over the long haul. And Linode gives you access to do that. They don't try to bolt it all away like the hyperscalers who also charge 30 to 50% more than Linode does. And on top of all of that, Linode has the best performance. Not just me saying that. I mean, yes, I have observed that. <laughs> that's for sure. But it's also been verified by third parties. And Linode's got 11 data centers around the world. You're probably going to find something close to you, your clients, your family, whatever it might be, maybe your friends, maybe your business. And they're turning on another dozen data centers this year. They have S3-compatible object storage, which I encourage you to play around with. This could change your game. For backups, huge. For the backend of a next cloud server, huge. For just sending links around and using their command line client to bop things up there, huge. We also use it as the backend asset storage for our Hugo website, fantastically huge. And we have all kinds of plans to use it for RSS feed distribution and more in the future. Their S3-compatible object storage really is great. They have a cloud firewall that prevents traffic from getting to your rig that you might not ever want in the first place. Easy to use backups that are A, easy to understand, B, easy to restore, and C, fantastic. I wanted to throw C in there for some reason. It seemed like I needed it. They got Kubernetes and Ansible and Terraform support if that's the direction you'd like to go. I understand. So go build something. Go learn something. Just try it for yourself and support the show. Linode is, I believe, the premium platform for users just like you and me. It just doesn't get any better. So go get $100 and put it over the top, linode.com slash SSH. Kick the tires, try it out. You can really see what it can do with that $100. Linode.com slash SSH. Ethan wrote into the show at selfhoster.show slash contact. Hi, Alex and Chris. I was happy to hear about Alex giving Rootless Pawban a shot in the last episode. I've been running all my stuff this way for more than a year now, and it has been Mostly great. <laughs> mostly great, he says. At least mostly great. One neat thing is that I don't see a lot of attention is Podman's auto-update feature. I use it for things like my personal website where I control an image versioning and unattended upgrades are desirable. It requires generating systemd units for target containers, which does mess with the usual compose flow. But in the rare case where I want complete automated updates, it's nice to have first-class support. And I don't need to reach for something like Watchtower. I don't know if this just makes me... A fuddy-duddy, an old neck beard. But when stuff breaks, I like to be there to watch it break. Auto-update just seems like a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I, I have not been able to turn it on myself either. I recently gave it a thought. You know, with Nix, you can roll back pretty easily. And so I thought I could turn on auto-updates with Nix. And I just don't want to be bothered. Plus, I think I'm such a nerd. And I wonder if anybody in the audience or if you feel this. I think I enjoy doing the updates. I think I like SA, For SSH sure. in. And, it's yeah? a video okay. game. It's a sport. Yes. Yeah. Even Home Assistant and stuff. I think I kind of enjoy it. So I'd be a little sad if I automated it. Plus, I then pick a time where I'm like, when it's an important system, I'm like, well, if it's going to break, I'm going to make sure I have time on the other end of this to fix it. And then I do the update. That's just it. I mean, it's always a balance between patching your S and auto updates. And that was a deep pull, by the way. For those old tech snap listeners uh you know you know it's it's a balance like anything in life you've got to find that balance and for me the balance is remembering to have a to do it remembering to have a to-doist task in there every month which is typically around the first of the month just to run an ansible playbook that updates everything for me 
my containers I tend to log into certainly the primary nodes that I have, but you know, I'm I'm managing ten to twenty servers these days. I can't log into all of them and pull container updates for all of them manually. That's just that's just madness. But at least when I'm there running the automation to do that in Ansible, I'm watching the errors scroll by in real time. I'm not in the middle of the tail of the dragon getting a ping on my phone saying, hey, Plex is down or, yeah, you or don't want jupiterbroadcasting.com is down or whatever the importance you attach to out of those things might be. Because uh, sometimes, you know, day, life happens. I might be asleep. You know, I'm not paged to fix these, some of these things that are genuinely critical infrastructure uh, for for the business, for you, and uh, for for home stuff. So I've always, even since the Linux server days, always had a strong aversion against auto-updating applications. Certain security packages, you know, the unattended upgrade stuff that's built into your OS, I feel very differently about. Uh, number one, that's probably a lot more battle-tested. Uh, than a, a random update to Plex or Nextcloud or whatever it might be in a container. Um, and, and also, if it's on my OS, the actual bare metal system, uh, or even a VM for that matter, uh, I, I think I want that to be... I want OpenSSL not to be vulnerable because that, that is a very critical... I, I choose OpenSSL just as, as an example, but that's a lot more critical to the overall health of everything than a specific container might be so Mm -hmm. it's a really neat feature and i can see certain use cases where let's say you want your load balancer to auto update or something like that with podman i can Mm -hmm. see it being useful um, Mm -hmm. but it's not something to use by default in my opinion it's just a nice to have yeah although maybe the future is fully rolling fully auto updating didn't we try that with arch (laughs) well not the auto part though (laughs) <laughs> we we had a listener write in uh, who told me that Arch was basically abandonware at the moment. So <laughs> who Aww. knows? I don't I don't know. I don't think that's true. But uh, it was what got me into Linux in the first place. So I've always got a soft spot for Arch. My dog is named Archie after Arch Linux. You know, so Arch for life. Yeah, technically, I run Arch on my Steam Deck. So technically, you do. Technically, yeah. Ian wrote in, it says, I really enjoyed episode 93. Alex mentioned Nextcloud syncing on iOS, and I remember I had to open the app every few days. I'm not sure which JB show, but a user feedback had a great suggestion to set up an iOS shortcut that opens Nextcloud every time you connect to a charger. In my case, I also have a check if I'm connected to Wi-Fi. I also have a separate automation to start TailScale when the Nextcloud app opens. Couple, a couple of those suggestions are really good. And Gene Bean also wrote in with twenty with a was it a row of ducks twenty two thousand two two two. Ah, some sats. grandpa ducks, yeah. Grandpa ducks, okay, yeah. Uh, I'd love to get a deep dive on how you're integrating Obsidian with Nextcloud. I'm an iOS user. Now, for both of those situations, a slightly different answer, but it's all mm. in the same sandwich. So let's talk about it. I tried the Nextcloud shortcuts automation. This week, actually. And so every time I put my phone on the charger, I wanted Nextcloud to open. Sounds pretty simple, right? Yeah, yeah. But your phone has to be unlocked, number one. Ah. And you don't realize over the course of a day, let's say you get in and out the car a few times, going, you know, dropping a package off or going for a, a tinkle at a service station or something. You don't realize just how many times you unplug and replug your phone from a quote unquote charger even if it's just your car or car play or whatever it is yeah like my car mount has a built-in charger 
you know, I have two desks in this house, one up here where we record podcasts and another one downstairs where I do day job. I have a wireless charger at both of those places. And so Nextcloud wants to open every time I put my phone on and off the charger, which could be as often as every time I get a text message, which gets kind of annoying. Uh, and then uh, you get you get the idea, right? So I put my yeah. phone on the charger at night and it's on the bedside table and it's not unlocked and it, it then pings at me and is bright in my face. You must unlock your phone to open Nextcloud. I'm like, I don't want to do that. Thanks, Apple. So I really... Uh, I, I like this idea in theory, but in practice, there aren't enough knobs and dials exposed through the iOS automation and shortcuts engines to do anything truly meaningful with this. Um, I, it's never going to happen. Apple are never going to listen to this. But if they do, I would love to see some kind of a background API that you could call for five minutes when on a charger to do exactly this kind of thing. That would just be perfect. Never going to happen. But that's what I'd like to see. Now, how I solve this issue with Obsidian is I moved my Obsidian Vault into iCloud Drive, which is not a self-hosted option, but it's been incredibly reliable for me. And it's what's finally bridged the gap with Obsidian onto my phone without paying for Obsidian's outrageously expensive proprietary sync service, which I hear works very well, but it's just too rich for my taste. Um, iCloud Drive works really well. I don't need any shortcuts or anything like that. And uh, that's how I solve that problem. I saw a couple of folks talking about the way that they have essentially, I think they did the, because you can do iCloud Drive for Obsidian, or you could do local folder. And then once you do local folder, you can use that sync thing app that isn't quite sync thing and maybe sync the folder of Obsidian that way. Or it's just, that that is a bit of a downer, that, that way that works. If you're all in on iCloud though, for that kind of stuff, it makes it really easy. And, you know, I think you could, you could probably trust the security of that, but I guess you just don't really know. The iCloud stuff works really well unless you're a Linux desktop user. And yeah. then or you, completely... you want to use an Android phone too. You move between Android and iOS. Yes. Yes. Then you're SOL. Yeah. Then you really are like, I should just pay. Because on Android, they really push it towards just paying for the service. Yeah. Which is funny because Android, you can background sync with yeah. Nextcloud just fine. And, and in fact, actually, that's what I did with Nextcloud on desktops for a year it was only once i put the the vault into icloud that i actually started using it on mobile and i've i am all in an obsidian i listened to you and wes and brent talk about logsec in uh, the most recent linux unplugged this weekend sounds super interesting i'm so deep into obsidian now though yeah i i think you know i don't know logseq just doesn't quite work for my brain i tried it for a bit same situation by the way with ios and android where it just basically pushes you towards icloud drive on ios you know with logseq it's all one flat list and then you're supposed to build these sort of things around it yeah i don't know i'm having i'm i'm having a i'm having pretty good results i hate to say it with joplin if i use vs code as the editor you can get a joplin vs code extension that integrates and so it just shows like all your Joplin notes, like a file system in VS code. And then you're using that UI. And I just find that to be at least a little more robust because for me, for whatever reason, Joplin on the desktop is super slow. Why do you say, is that why you say you hate to, to say Joplin because of the desktop side? Yeah, it's, I haven't been happy with the desktop side. And it also seems to be the least flashy of them. It's just sort of a real bare bones Evernote alternative. And it doesn't do everything I wanted. Um, Obsidian, I think, does probably more through the plugins with uh, search and contextual search and whatnot. But 
I have liked the fact that it just produces markdown files like Obsidian and it syncs through Nextcloud over Tailscale. And so on all of my different OSs and Android and iOS and Mac and Linux, I can just use Joplin and have it sync through Nextcloud. So that's been nice. And I don't have to have any account. I think that was the other thing that really was nice is I don't need to set up an account with anybody. I never have to log into the Joplin app. I just launch it. I'm I'm having a real kind of reverse course on things that require logins that I might want to get to years later. I just don't want to have to try to remember my login to get to my notes. That is absolutely what we should be covering on this show, right? With self-hosted. That's kind of the point is the data sovereignty aspect of a lot of these services where where does the encryption key live is is a really good way to think about it where does the password live like can you get to it years down the road can you open it up and get to the data if you don't exactly if you don't have plain text files on your drive that you can then choose a method to encrypt if you want there's going to come some point in the future where you can't access that stuff anymore mm-hmm uh, I watched a really interesting video on uh, Obsidian this week from Christian Lemper, who's a, a YouTube guy uh, from Germany, I think, who does a bunch of home lab stuff. But he did an Obsidian episode this week about all the plugins he's using. Put put a link to that in the uh, in the show notes. Just I think he goes through his top five plugins. There's some useful stuff in there, particularly around like the data view plugins and stuff that are a bit more Obsidian proprietary, that make plain text files function a little bit more like a database. Uh, it's it's cool. Go check it out. Antoine1109 came in with 30,000 sats this week. On the last show, you guys were talking about self-hosting and being left behind with this new AI landscape. We're pondering that this week, too. I wonder if it'd be possible to sort of get like a SETI slash BitTorrent type of distributed approach. Could we possibly create networks with like-minded, trusted peers and use something like IPFS to store and share the data? Could you think of a way we could come together as self-hosters and combine our power? I could see the JB community having quite a bit of influence in that. Love the show. Interesting. Like to solve these large models and large compute problems, instead of instead of throwing hardware directly at it, sort of come up with distributed models and something like IPFS to have distributed data. Do you remember in the early days of the PlayStation 3 that it had a folding at home client? Yeah. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah, they were so jazzed up about the cell chip. Wouldn't something like that? But for self-hosted AI models, be that'd be cool, right? Yeah. I mean, all right, whoever's, somebody listening needs to go build that. That just seems like a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, give uh, Antoine some of the uh, credit there. Uh, Marcel comes in with some ominous 6,666 sats. Uh, and this is about the Plex credit detection. Do you think, and what, do you th- and what are your thoughts, Alex? Uh, is it more likely to be easier to detect the credits playing compared to the intros? Credits are generally white text on black. Well, not always, actually. I bet it could be done with good old OpenCV. No fancy AI required. Yeah, they did mention AI, using AI, didn't they? Yeah, but who's, if you're not using AI to, to make your toast at the minute, you know, you're doing it wrong. Uh, I don't know about the credits thing being in easy compared to intros. I mean, different episodes may have different lengths based on, you know, air times and how, how much of the show they had to, to cut for time that, that week or whatever it might be. Yeah, and some shows, they show credits while the scenes are still playing out, like the last bit of the show is still playing and the credits come up. So that w- I don't know. Uh, and the more I think about it, the, actually, the trickier it seems, actually. Okay, and then our last one came from Zoe, 2,998 sats from the podcast index. I love this. Just first time donator. I got some random sats from a coworker because he wanted to show off sats. 
not knowing that I know about it already. Love the show. Keep up the great work. <laughs> That's got to be the most random boost. I love it. I love it. Uh, thank you, everybody, uh, for boosting in. We uh, we generally do the top four boosts, and we appreciate everybody else's boost. It streams, too. I was looking this morning, and somebody was streaming sats right as we were prepping the doc. It's always really cool to see. And, of course, you can live. Uh, Linux Teamster reminds everybody that you can stream the show live over at jupiter.tube. We do the show live every other week on a Wednesday. The actual lifetime is posted at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. But then you go over to our self-hosted PeerTube instance. And if you didn't catch it live, you can watch the playback. But you tune in. You got the Discord up. It's an experience. It's a geeky, geeky, nerdy experience. Speaking of geeky and nerdy experiences, on Saturday, April the 29th in Olympia, Washington, uh, Chris and I think Brent, uh, Mr. Westbot going to be there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mr. West Payne. Mm-hmm. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. We need to find a self-hosted alternative to Meetup. I'm aware of Get Together, but it kind of got the thumbs down from the community. Mm. So I don't know. Maybe it's gotten better. Maybe there's something else. Would really like feedback on as always, a big thank you to our SRE, Site Reliability Engineer, subscribers. You are the ones that make the show genuinely, actually, truly possible. Uh, you support the show. We, we give you an ad-free feed. We do a post-show for you as well. You can go and subscribe over at selfhosted.show slash SRE. Yes, thank you, everybody. We really do appreciate it. Of course, links to what we talked about today, those are over on our website at selfhosted.show slash Nine five. We got the contact page over there for the email and the RSS for the subscribe, so you can get it every other week as it as it be. And uh, I'll say, come find me on the Matrix. I am Chris Lass on the Matrix over there. I'll plug our Discord too, selfhosted.show/slash/discord, which is of course what we use during the live stream. But it's going all day, every day. There's quite a bit going on in there. Check it out, selfhosted.show/slash/discord. And you can find me over on Mastodon at ironicbadger at techhub.social. That rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> and don't forget the YouTube channel. Plug the YouTube channel there. Oh, yeah. The old uh, KTZ Systems thing is doing pretty well. I'm almost at, as we record, almost at 2,000 subscribers, which is nuts in a month. Oh, come on. We can get more than that, everybody. Go. Come on now. Go subscribe. All right. And uh, you can uh, follow the show on the Twitter, if you like, at Self Hosted Show. Uh, but, you know, I understand if you don't. <laughs> it's Twitter. It's old now. I get it. Great plug, Chris. You're you're quite the salesman. <laughs> I'm really feeling it these days. <laughs> quite the salesman indeed. <laughs> As always, thanks for listening, everybody. That was self-hosted.show slash 95.